This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who's subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is our seventh episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 41, is entitled An Immovable Object. I hope you enjoy the show. On October 29, 1050, the Archbishop of Canterbury named Edsig, the man who had crowned both King Harthacnut in 1040 and King Edward in 1043, a man who began his public rise to influence as a priest in King Canute's court, well, Archbishop Edsig, he died. And anybody playing along at home could see with crystal clarity that this transition to a new archbishop was going to be rough. See, Godwin, he had a guy. And Edward, he also had a guy. But see, Godwin's guy, he was English. And Edward's guy wasn't. Canterbury held a firm grip over spiritual influence on the island for quite a while, and so the outcome of this succession would prove to be controversial either way. But to have an Englishman loyal to the kingdom's most powerful earl, and a Norman loyal only to the king himself, well... This was clearly a bad, bad situation for all involved. This would come to be known as the Crisis of Canterbury, which for all intents and purposes is remembered less for the bit about the succession and more about what it triggers, occurring between Edsig's death in late 1050 and, well, let's just leave it at it lasting a couple years, a couple crazy, turbulent years to be clear. With Godwin's nostrils already flaring as the kingdom was about to pass relatively quietly into the year uh, 1051, his huffing was about to get a lot louder. See, way back in 1012, Edward's father, King Ethelred II, introduced the kingdom to a new tax to pay for a standing army with which to always be at the ready to fight Swain Forkbeard's Danish forces. This tax was called a Harageld, or translated to army tax. Well, this didn't exactly mean what we might think it means today. Army, Navy, these are two separate but co-equal branches of a nation's military forces today. But back then, it kind of strangely all wrapped up into one tax levied on the people to supply, well, anything the king requested with which to fight an invading force with. Soldiers, timber, food, metals, weapons, you name it. In 1051, with Normandy quelled somewhat since its young duke subdued any resistance at Valles Dunes four years earlier, and the Danish completely occupied with Norway, well, what's the use of a Harageld anyway? Magnus was dead, so those mean letters from Norway stopped. What did England have to fear at this point? I mean, they weren't indestructible, and no one, not even King Edward, thought so. But why continue to suffocate the people with a tax that was largely unnecessary at the moment? Yeah, (laughs) Uh, the people, I say with air quotes on an audio podcast. King Edward, 
England's 11th century Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> That's it. Huh. All right. Okay, so Edward most likely didn't exactly have the people in mind when in 1051, just off the heels of putting a Norman up for the archbishopric, uh, archbishopric in Canterbury and thoroughly ticking off his wealthiest and most powerful earl, well, King Edward abolished the 39-year-old tax. And Godwin was beside himself. Why, you ask? Well, Godwin's nephew was still fighting desperately for the throne of Denmark, which would not only pull the North Sea into some semblance of peace, but it would also catapult his family's prestige around Europe, especially if it was Godwin's navy that helped Swain Esterson defeat the mighty Harold Hardrada in Norway. That Harrogild tax, it supported Godwin's navy. Godwin was able to keep a firm grasp on that navy and do what was in the best interest of the kingdom. But come on, who's this guy kidding anyway? In reality, Godwin was able to create, for all intents and purposes, his own navy, using resources and money collected from around the kingdom, not just Wessex. It was corruption par excellence on the level with the U.S. auto industry, only, you know, with, with soldiers and warships. And don't forget that the previous year also saw Earl Harold Godwinson use what was left of his father's navy in England to defeat those Germanic pirates off the southern and eastern coasts of England. Edward didn't have a case to abolish the navy, that's for sure. But that's not what Edward did, was it? While Godwin's screaming about how Edward undermined the kingdom's safety by dismantling its navy, Edward could calmly sit back and insist that he didn't say anything about not having a navy. He simply revoked the Earl's powers to collect the antiquated tax. I just imagine Earl's Leofrich and Seward stifling chuckles at this one. Besides, as we'll see, Earl Leofrich had his own issues with King Griffith ap Thuellen on his Welsh border, and Earl Seward had Macbeth's Scotland all bent out of shape to his north. Why should they still continue to or continue to contribute to a tax that was specifically put in place to defend against Danish Vikings, but has come to be a source of power by the Earl of Wessex? Again, they had their own problems to deal with, and a naval force wasn't exactly necessary. So, in short, Edward struck at the heart of Godwin's power when he cancelled the Harrogeld tax. You can really see Edward coming into his own here in 1050 to 1051. After decades spent watching from afar, and then a couple years traipsing around the court of his younger half-brother, and then almost a decade with that crown on his head, Edward was well aware of Godwin to this point. And don't forget who Edward shared his marriage bed with. Godwin's daughter, the beautiful Edith Swanneck. She was actually an invaluable member of Edward's inner circle and simply cannot be dismissed as quote-unquote just a quiet queen in the background of Saxon history. I contend that without Queen Edith, Edward just doesn't succeed, period. She helped him dress properly after he just spent 20 years wandering the world calling himself Alexander Supertramp, and she was also instrumental in teaching him the importance of the church in England, too, even skillfully undermining the king at times to make him seem like a benevolent king when he clearly had chosen to be seen as the opposite. In hindsight, depending on whose side you were on, that is, Edward could have made a different power play to show his superiority over Godwin, but this certainly afforded the king a level of appreciation on the part of the common folk around the kingdom. 
as the alleviation of any tax is preferable to actually having a tax in the first place. However, Edward didn't necessarily require a majority vote of the populace to stay in power. In the 11th century, approval of your most notable and noble families was all the vote you really needed, and Edward just flushed his most powerful vote straight down the tubes with this move. So what does this all have to do with a new archbishop in Canterbury? (laughs) Good question. Uh, It has everything and nothing to do with the Archbishop of Canterbury. So Edward boots out Swain Godwinson in 1047 for briefly allying himself with an enemy of the kingdom and, you know, stealing an abbess. He distributed Earl Swain's lands between Earl Harold Godwinson and the brother of the Danish king, Earl Bjorn Esterson. Edward readmits Swain, which pacifies Earl Godwin for a time, but Harold and Bjorn aren't having it and refuse to give back the lands they acquired after the exile. Swain returned, but ends up killing Earl Bjorn Esterson, so Edward gave him the ultimate boot and declared him a nothing, further separating him from his Earl of Wessex. At this point, Swain Godwinson was a lost soul, a man, a man without a name, a human without his humanity. Swain was reduced to an animal, essentially. Edward pushed harder against Earl Godwin and then canceled his tax that supported Godwin's navy, thus removing a possible naval force that could be used against the crown. See, Godwin was undergoing an extremely slow neutering between 1047 and 1050. Context is key. In all things all the time, context is key. This, this context, this was the situation that Archbishop Edsig died. For eight years, Edward had been under Godwin's thumb. Godwin pushed his way into the naming of the earls. He pushed his way into the protection of the coastlines. This guy pushed his way into Edward's bedroom. Was there nothing of Edward's in this entire kingdom other than a title? But full disclosure, Edward wasn't exactly a victim here. See, we can't forget where Edward spent his formidable years, his his vagabond 20s, his tragic 30s. Edward didn't take the crown of England until he was in his late 30s, 39 years old, I believe. I mean, as far as monarchs go, that's, that's pretty old. But he knew he owed that in large part to his Earl of Wessex and ugh, <laughs> his mother, Emma of Normandy, now in her early 60s at this point, uh, who's still hanging around England doing what she can to keep some semblance of influence, which is to say not much after Edward's marriage to the formidable presence of Edith Swanneck. See, Edward came from his mother's homeland. He lived there longer than she did. He lived there longer than he ever lived in England to this point. He may have had proud Saxon blood of Alfred and the dominant blood of Rollo the Walker, and by extension the current Duke of Normandy, William, mind you, very important, but he was without question culturally and socially Norman. I, I, I hammer this in for a reason, folks. He no doubt was bilingual in both English, excuse me, Old English and Norman French. His sensibilities were Norman French. He was most likely pretty familiar with Norman war tactics, namely the cavalry. He spent decades admiring the emerging Norman Romanesque architectural styles that were quickly evolving during the 11th century and would peak very soon. The guy was, by any measure, Norman. Edward was a foreigner in his own homeland and its king. Funny how things work out, isn't it? 
When he stepped foot on English shores at the behest of his half-brother, Harthacnut, he brought with him naturally a hefty contingent of Norman soldiers, housemaids, counselors, spiritual leaders. The guy was Norman, and the English were English, and many English people noticed this Norman presence on their island and at the highest halls of the English political hierarchy. And the English weren't exactly enthusiastic about it either. I mean, they liked the guy well enough, I guess, but they really liked what he represented a return to Anglo-Saxon rule. But Queen Edith even went so far as to request a Norman chambermaid to help her learn Norman French just so she could, I don't know, live in her own home. You can't really blame her. At home, everywhere she looked, she was surrounded by Normans. She, the queen, was a foreigner in her own home. Again, funny how things work out. A Norman-centric household could easily spill over to a Norman-centric capital. And when a Norman presence makes it into the decision-making processes of not only politics, but trade and diplomacy, well, it's, it's very easily spread from there. According to the Vita Eduardi, a, a document commissioned by Queen Edith much later about her family's biography, though it centered around King Edward, it said that this Norman Bishop of London, this, this Robert of Jumiege, was, quote, always the most powerful confidant to the king, end quote. So when in late 1050, Bishop Robert of London accused Earl Godwin of illegally holding church lands, a source of income for Godwin, mind you, Edward, by way of Bishop Robert, now became a direct public threat to Earl Godwin's bottom line. And you wanted someone to take you seriously, even in the 21st century, hit their bottom line. Say what you want about honor and all that, but take a crack at their checkbook and it's inevitable that they'll take you seriously. Period. And at last, we come to the conclusion to the crisis of Canterbury. See, the monks and clergy at Canterbury still had a vacancy to fill. Archbishops in many places including Canterbury, this is all over Europe, were either elected with an approval of the king, or they were just appointed by the king, or they were just elected by the clergy, and that was it. And regardless of how an archbishop was chosen, a trip to Rome to receive the blessing and papal banner from the Vatican was mandatory to make it official. Remember that one for later. The clergyman at Canterbury elected a local bishop with familial ties to Godwin. I believe, I've read conflicting reports, but I've seen more that it was Bishop Stigand. Edward denied this appointment and chose someone else with no local ties whatsoever. The pattern holds here with Edward, doesn't it? The man he chose to be the new Archbishop of Canterbury in the spring of 1051 was his Bishop of London his Norman confidant and spiritual advisor, and, it seems, political advisor, Robert of Jumiege. The man pretty much everyone knew had been the single biggest wedge prying Godwin's influence away from Edward. Throw in the events of the last episode, in 1047, regarding Swain Godwin since exiles, and then now the neutering of Godwin's navy tax, and Edward has just put a finger in the chest of the bouncer at Godwin's nightclub. This succession of events against the House of Godwin just got real. In the midst of all this, <laughs> Edward decided he needed to, uh, you know, just meet up with an old friend. 
Seems like a good time, right? And into London walks one magnificent mustache. Yeah, I said it. A man who is still today seen on the Bayou Tapestry, a relic we will discuss in much greater detail in later episodes, sporting some majestic golden lip foliage, a feature that will forever characterize him in our history books today. He arrives on English shores and is welcomed for a stay with Edward for a brief period in 1051. Now, this comes on the heels of news a few years earlier that Edward's sister, Countess Goda, wife of the man behind that sweet and spicy mustache, had passed away, again, just a couple years earlier. So it's essentially Edward wanting to keep his relations with the county of Boulogne on the mainland nice and strong. And just so you know, the county of Boulogne was a part of the French uh, kingdom, and it was smashed right between two uh, burgeoning allies, Normandy and Flanders. This all plays into to how this is unfolding here. So here we go. Before we continue, though, it's worth remembering what exactly is at play here. Again, Edward's sister Goda had been married to Count Eustace II of Boulogne, tying the House of Wessex to the House of Flanders Boulogne. Godwin was tied to the House of Flanders, or simply the House of Baldwin, by his third son's marriage to Count Baldwin V's half-sister, that is, Tostig Godwinson, to Judith of Flanders. Judith of Flanders was the daughter, though, of Eleanor of Normandy and cousin of William, Duke of Normandy. And speak of the devil, despite the papal objections, Duke William had just married Count Baldwin V's daughter, Matilda, loosely tying Godwin to Normandy, too. Again, please do not dismiss the power of medieval marriage. You see how just complex some of these, some of these connections and these allies become. But last but not least, our village idiot, Swain Godwinson, had been quarreling with a man who was an original member of King Edward's entourage to England in 1041. Edward's nephew, to be exact. This man's name? was Ralph of Mantis, and Ralph was the stepson, you guessed it, of Count Eustace II of Boulogne, the man with the mustache. It's worth, it's worth noting here that Swain Godwinson was at this time actually on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem as penance for his crimes and sins, which he and his father hoped would pave the way for a readmittance to the kingdom. Um, <laughs> and in total Swain Godwinson, I'm a train wreck fashion, he decided to go all out, as he does with everything in his life, and he decided to make the trip barefoot. We will talk more about that later. So, ah, uh, yes, back to it. The plot thickens. As you can imagine, Godwin was looking at this visit between former brothers-in-law with a side eye, to be sure. Something just seemed off about this whole situation. If Edward was on Godwin's side, then why would Edward continue his relationship with a county was not exactly on good terms with Godwin's allies in Flanders and Normandy. Really, nothing is recorded about the purpose of the visit, or what was said between the two men, or anything about the trip, really, except that Count Eustace Algernon visited Edward. And by the way, Algernon translates to with the mustache. See, I told you that was one epic flavor saver, even made it into his name for all time. Everything seemed to be going pretty smoothly for those couple of weeks, but something happened on the way out of the forum here. As Eustace 
accompanied by his contingent of Ballonese men and his brilliant mouth main, of course, rode south toward Dover, where they would catch their ships and uh, back home across the North Sea. It seems a very minor molehill was made into a mountain the size of that crumb catcher on his face. As the Ballonese rode into the outskirts of Dover, Eustace ordered his men to bunk up for the night, which is strange because, in essence, though they were guests of the king, affording them a certain level of protection, of course, they were by no means welcomed by the Anglo-Saxon locals. Not only were they foreigners speaking a completely different language and wearing different style clothing and all the rest, but these locals were, like the rest of the kingdom, over foreigners coming to their land. The Danes, the Norse, over the last couple hundred years, they ruined England when it came to English welcoming outsiders, well-meaning or not. Oh, and here's another interesting detail. Now there's no definitive record as to who devised this next order, Eustace himself or his incomparable soup strainer. But the soldiers were instructed to suit up and make themselves battle ready as they rode toward the coast. As the story goes, Eustace's men fanned out across Dover's countryside seeking a shelter to hang for the night. One small handful in particular showed up at the man, or excuse me, at the home of a man, if you can believe this guy's disrespect, had the audacity to not let these Balonese soldiers into his home, not only free of charge, but with his family in there too. A simple disagreement quickly turned into a little pushing and shoving, which then ended in a soldier striking the man, the man killing the soldier back, and the other soldiers murdering the man right there on his doorstep. Kind of a big cultural no-no to do that. Word spread quickly throughout Dover, and within the hour, Eustace, his men, and his incredible Tom Selleck were riding against the townspeople of Dover, who were more than ready to meet out a good old-fashioned Anglo-Saxon welcome committee. Eustace and what was left of his contingent after the melee rode back to Edward and updated the king on how the people of Dover, unprovoked, attacked him and his men, killing some of them. (laughs) Edward, according to the records, was furious. Furious that his honored guest and family member, remember, still connected by Ralph of Mentes, remember, would be so disrespectfully treated by his own subjects. Wait, though. The people of Dover weren't just Edward's subjects. No, they were Godwin's subjects, as Dover was in Sussex, and Sussex was in Wessex. These were Godwin's people who did this, no doubt, as retribution toward Edward for ignoring his man for the Archbishopric of Canterbury and exiling his son and abolishing the Harrogeld. This was a calculated move by Edward's Earl, of course, right? This, to Edward, mustn't go unpunished. Edward sent word to Godwin, who was already trying his best to sort things out and find out exactly what happened, that the Earl was ordered to punish the people of Dover. And not just dole out a little destruction here or there, or even press a new tax on them. No, this, this, uh, this must be swift and deadly violence, to be clear. Edward was in no uncertain terms ordering Earl Godwin to massacre Dover and torch the town. Do you remember on a previous episode how we would discuss that sacred but unspoken oath the nobility made with their peasantry and vice versa? See, Edward was forcing Godwin to negate that agreement with his people. What would that do to the rest of Wessex going forward? 
Would they embrace their Earl and his family in the same way that they had before the massacre, even when every story except for Eustace's to Edward coming out of Dover was that the townspeople were merely defending themselves? Right or wrong, Edward was once and for all forcing Earl Godwin's hand. What precisely was their relationship here? Was it Earl loyal to King? Or was it King loyal to Earl? As Edward stood firm, Godwin chose to reverse the challenge. Godwin refused the order. He refused to massacre his people. What happened to Worcester under Hartha Canute no doubt played into that decision, as it had been, what, a decade or so since that event? Those wounds were still pretty fresh among the nobility. Edward, of course, couldn't believe it and sent another order to Godwin threatening severe punishment should he refuse again. Godwin sent a letter asking for safe passage to appear before his king to plead his people's and his cases. Edward at first refused his earl safe passage, saying that if Godwin was indeed innocent, then he wouldn't feel the need to ask for safe passage. And to break the narrative for a moment, doesn't this all seem a little fishy? A little, I don't know, convenient? Dare I say staged? Hear me out. For at least three years, Edward had been slowly coming into his own, and by doing that, he had to separate himself from his powerful earl. Separating himself meant doing things that his earl disagreed with, or, or even making decisions that, that went against the earl's best interests. And then, all of a sudden, Edward invites his ally, brother-in-law, and father of a nephew in his own court to travel across the treacherous channel to, what, have a little catch-up session? A drink, maybe? And then with nearly every account saying Eustace ordered his men to get ready for battle before supposedly innocently asking the people of Dover for a place to rest their weary heads before their long trip home, a scuffle occurs giving Edward the perfect reason to order his earl to break that sacred and unspoken agreement between him and his people. All of this, all this because Edward wanted to hang out with an old friend? Nah, I don't buy it. Not for a hot second, actually. Operations like this, that is, traveling with a large retinue of soldiers and across a stretch of rough seas, no less, these were not simple, nor were they cheap. They were just that, an operation. Unless I've missed a record or something, my personal opinion is that Edward was playing uh, one of his final chess pieces here on Godwin, his, his check move, catching his powerful Earl dead to rights and forcing him into a submissive role, finally. Knocking him back on his heels, you could say. Everything was going swimmingly for Edward. He had grounded out, just like Godwin had over those years. And for three years, God, or excuse me, for three years, Edward had slowly pushed his dangerously powerful Earl back on his heels to the point of su- submission. Godwin didn't have an answer to Edward's moves, but, and here's the lesson for all of us. When you push someone to the point where they're about to lose everything, That's when people either cower and succumb to faint, or they rise and make a bold stand. At this point, in the days after Dover, Edward had presented himself in a new light. Not just to his Earl of Wessex, but to the entire kingdom. Edward was king, and he refused to concede. He refused to budge any longer. King Edward had become an immovable object. And it was here, in September of 1051, that the King of England, well, he was going to make some moves toward his powerful Earl. 
moves that again seem really convenient, moves that, that shake the foundations. And things would begin to pop up here and there that cause people, still today, myself included, to question Edward's motives this entire time. What comes next doesn't put the future saint, Edward the Confessor, in a very good light at all. I hope you enjoyed today's episode detailing Edward's initial endgame against the formidable House of Godwin. Please continue to subscribe and share the podcast on your favorite podcasting service or app. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can contact the show with questions, concerns, topics, suggestions, and yes, even corrections, as I'm certainly humble enough to know that there will be unintentional errors along the way, and I would love to correct them, but I need your help. But you can reach me at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for just a couple bucks per month. You will receive perks such as bonus episodes and shoutouts on the show, to name a couple. My goal for this podcast is to be 100% ad-free and self-sustaining by the end of the year, and I appreciate everyone who is helping to make this possible. Thank you. On the next episode, we will take a look at what happens when immovable objects refuse to budge. Remember, to be immovable is a choice, and being king, Edward most certainly had a choice. And speaking of choices, you can tell a lot about a person by looking at how they choose to spend their time. And I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared history here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.